we are kicking off a brand new series this month um, called Voicing Our Emotions, Exploring the Psalms. We're going to discover and go on a journey together on growing in our honesty to God and our honesty with God so that we can have our emotions transformed in the process. Uh, and one of the funny things when you think about honesty um, is how if you have kids or if you have grandkids... Uh, how quickly you see that like they're just like honest right from the get-go, right? Like there's like no pretense, no mask to having children. They'll just tell you exactly what they think right off the top of their head. And it's something that's beat out of us as we get older, or maybe we get a little bit of a filter, uh, which is a healthy thing too. But I found online uh, some notes written from kids, which is brutal, brutal honesty. Check this out, this first one right here. You gotta like, m don't mind the spelling. You're doing their best. Um, I won't love you if you make me clean my room. It's like, that's just a day. I love you if, you if I don't have to do all those things. Here's another brutally honest thing to mommy. I love you sometimes. <laughs> I think that's sometimes the emotion in our house too uh, as well. Here's one if you have like picky eater kids. Uh, here's a little post-it note in the fridge. Uh, again, I love the spelling, but this tastes horrible. Uh, just a little passive-aggressive, not to, like, tell you it tastes bad, but to literally take the time to write a note and stick it on it in the fridge. I love that. Chef's kiss to the passive-aggressive thing here. But this one's my favorite right here, the honesty here. Probably a teacher made him do this. Uh, but it says, Dear Brody, uh, Miss P made me write you this note. All I want to say sorry for is not being sorry, because I tried to feel sorry, but I don't. <laughs> Liam. I love that so much. Because it's just like, I'm trying to feel sorry. You ever, like, make... Two kids like hug it out and they're like hugging it out but hurting each other while they're doing it. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to like squeeze you so it hurts. That's kind of the vibe going on here. But when we talk about honesty, I think it's really important to consider that um, honesty is actually a sign of health. Uh, and when we think about our relationships, I want to put this thought in front of you, see if you agree with it or not. But I think this is very true. The honest relationships are healthy relationships and vice versa. Healthy relationships are honest relationships. When you can let your hair down, when you can drop your mask or your facade, and you can be who you are, and you're accepted by the other person, man, that level of intimacy and honesty is so healthy. Or when like you can truly, they can truly be themselves, and they say what they really think on maybe how you've hurt their feelings, and they know that you're not going to run for the hills, but you're going to stay there, and you're going to continue to work on it. Like, isn't it true that honest relationships are healthy relationships. Healthy relationships are honest relationships. This is just what it is. I, I think back to uh, the very first time that I did premarital counseling. I've shared this story before. I apologize if you heard it, but it's just too good. Uh, my very first session of premarital counseling was with a couple that had been dating for three years. They'd been engaged for a year. And we got to the session, I think it was the third session, talking about conflict resolution. And I'm like, so what do you guys fight about? What are your guys' arguments about, your conflicts? And they, like, sitting at a table at Starbucks, they, like, hold each other's hand, and they look at each other, smile, and they look at me, and they're like, well, we've never had a fight in four years. To which I had, like, all the alerts go off in my head. Woo, this is not good. This is really not good. This is not healthy. So, like, anybody who is a, you know, a faithful minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I tried to instigate a fight in the middle of Starbucks there. Because I'm like, you guys need to learn how to fight and fight fair and actually deal with conflict. Because it's part of healthy relationships is you being able to say what you really think and to be able to really be yourself in front of the person. If not, there's a facade, there's a mask, and it's not going to be healthy. Because honest relationships are healthy relationships. Parents and grandparents, let me ask you this question. When you think about your kids or your grandkids, 
Would you rather have respectful relationships or honest relationships with them? Some of you are like, Joel, I take both, please. I, I'll take both, yeah, that sounds good. But, yeah. but if you had to pick one, would you rather have just respectful relationship where you, they say the right things to you just to respect you, but they're never honest with you? Or would you rather them be the person that comes to you and shares what's really going on, the hard things, the challenging things, the dark night of the soul moments that they have? Don't you want to be that person that they bring that to? Because honest relationships are healthy relationships, and we long for honesty because honesty brings the way to intimacy and true connection. What's interesting is I, I venture to say that most of us would say that, yeah, we want honest relationships with our kids and our grandkids. I believe that the same thing is true with your heavenly father. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but your heavenly father longs for honesty over any other emotion that you can muster up with him. He wants you to be real with him. He doesn't want the facade, the mask. He doesn't want fear to be in the driver's seat. He doesn't want duty to be in the driver's seat. He wants you to honestly connect with him. And I think there's so much that we have to break down with maybe our religious background or church baggage and the way that we've approached God to think that, well, I've got to sort of say the right things. And it's kind of a password that opens up the door to get the things that I want. And you, you feel this way uh, in church. You feel joy, right? Joy. That's it. Joy. And you celebrate. That's the only emotion that's correct. And it seems to be like all these other emotions that don't belong. But I believe that your Heavenly Father like, created you with those emotions. And there's a way to bring all of the things that you feel before God and to him so that he can transform you from the inside out. I, I put it this way. This is what God wants. God wants us to be honest with him about how we're honestly feeling. Yeah, he already knows it. I mean, that's one element of it. There's nothing hidden from him. But there's something transformative that happens when we bring what's really going on underneath the hood to him, when we talk to him, when we pray to him, and we share all of those emotions with him, like that is what God is after. Not like I've had a terrible week, I need to go to church and act like everything's okay, sing the joyful songs, raise my hands, do all the things, because that's what God wants. Let me just like gently give you the permission to let's deconstruct that idea. Let's, let's tear that idea down and let's go back to the root of healthy relationship is honesty and God longs to have a healthy relationship with you and be honest with him. He wants you to be honest as you pray to him, as you talk to him. And, and as we talk about prayer, I mean, I think there's something that we have to, we have to like uh, uh, just change in our thinking when we think about prayer. Because when we think about prayer, honestly, don't we think about what Kenton did at the end of our worship set this morning, like praying there? Or whenever I'm at a family gathering, it feels like if it's right before the meal, everyone looks at me like, Joel, you're on, it's showtime, this is your job, like... Say something eloquent, say something, throw in a Bible verse for good measure. Like, this is what you do, Joel. You work one day a week on Sundays and you pray at family meals. That's all you do, right? <laughs> but prayer is so much more than that. Prayer is not about being eloquent. Prayer is not about an artsy way of speaking to God. It's not a way of transitioning in a service. It's not a way to get what you want or rub the lamp and get the genie wish that you want. Prayer is so much more than that. I came across this tweet a couple weeks ago from Rich Viotos, who is a pastor in New York City, author, thinker, who's just brilliant. I love almost so much that he says, but he says this, I thought it was so appropriate for our conversation today. Prayer, simply stated, is the opening of oneself to God, an act of lifting our hearts in trust 
And the good news is there's nothing out of bounds in prayer. Let me say that again. Repeat that. There is nothing out of bounds in prayer. Therefore, pray your fears, pray your grief, pray your lusts, pray your anger, pray your joys. It all matters to God. Prayer is not an eloquent paragraph at the end of a worship set or what somebody says before a meal to make sure the bad calories don't hit you. Prayer is an opening of oneself to God. It's bringing whatever's going on under the hood before God so that we're transformed in the process and we're honest with him. So we grow in trust and relationship with him as well. It all matters to God. I'll go as far to say that every emotion that we experience in life, it all belongs. It's all part of the human experience, and God created you to feel these emotions. He just doesn't want you to feel them away from him because that's when they get out of whack. So God has invited us to pray, to be honest with him. And one of the beautiful ancient pathways of being honest with God and praying to God and bringing ourselves and opening up ourselves to God is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is this massive chunk of the Old Testament, the First Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's 150 different chapters, 150 different prayers, 150 different songs of worship and poems that helped open people up, ancient people up to God. And it's this, this place where we get to see how we can respond, how we should respond in light of all of the emotions that we feel so that we can be honest with him. Eugene Peterson, who's responsible for the, the message paraphrase of the Bible, if you've ever come across that, it's a really beautiful work. But he wrote often about the Psalms, and I've learned so much from reading his writings about it. He says this about the Psalms. The Psalms represent the experience of men and women who have prayed in every conceivable circumstance across 30 centuries. We have these footsteps before us in our Bibles of men and women opening themselves up to God in every conceivable circumstance for 30 centuries to see how they walked, the words they used, the emotions, and how they brought them before God. Every experience is validated in the Psalms. Joy, brokenheartedness, lament, fear, anger, everything. And the Psalms are honest with God. They're brutally honest. Can I just say, like, they're awkwardly honest with God. I mean, they say things to God and in the presence of God that we would not dare to say on a Sunday morning at church in 2023. And there's this whole section of the Psalms, there's one-third of the Psalms that are songs of lament. And when I say lament, I'm not saying a French breath, man. I'm saying like lament of like being like sad and honest and groaning, crying out to God and complaining to God, petitioning God. Here's one example of a psalm of lament. We're going to talk about this all next week. But why, Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Can we just be real? We felt this way sometimes, haven't we? God, where are you? Why don't you show up for me like you showed up for Moses? Why don't you show up for me like you showed up for my aunt? Why didn't you show up for my grandmother the way you showed up for my uncle? Like all those different kind of confusing things, actually in the Bible, not hidden in the Bible, but there God gives us a way to express it to him, to lament, to be brokenhearted before him. There's this other section of the Psalms that we don't like talking about a lot in church, so we're going to spend a whole Sunday talking about it in a couple weeks at Bridgeway, um, called the Precatory Psalms. The precatory psalms are psalms of anger and songs of vengeance. It's saying some pretty terrible things to God. Eugene Peterson says that they're a way to cuss without cussing, is to pray the precatory psalms. But here's an example. 
This is in our Bibles, you guys. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. God, my enemy's evil. I need you to get somebody even more evil to oppose my enemy. And let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. This is like Tony Soprano mob boss psalm, right? May another take his place of leadership. And I stopped it right there because there'd be more theological questions raised to the surface than I have time to give good answers for. So we'll get into that in a couple weeks. But what I want you to see is that the psalm are honest. They're brutally honest. They, every emotion, anger, fear, brokenheartedness, grief, lust, they're all there and they can all be brought before God and laid bare before God so that we can be honest with them, so we can trust him, so that we can move forward and grow. The Psalms, you guys, are tools to help us give voice to our emotions, every emotion that we experience as human beings. And today we're going to talk specifically about the emotion of confusion. When you feel like you don't know where to go next, you don't know what's next for you, you don't know if you should stay or if you, if you should go, if you stay on the same path or you need to have a shift of direction, you feel like you are a boat and you do not have a rudder and you don't know where you're going. That emotion that we've all experienced a lot in our lives, especially over the last three and a half years, right? Let me take you back to the before times, February of 2020, right? Because like March of 2020 hit, and can we just like imagine for a moment, we all went through a lot of cultural confusion over the next year and a half to two years, and some of us are still spinning it, right? I mean, there was a time when we all came to work normally, and then we got alerts on our phones, and we got text messages and emails about something called a coronavirus. Like, does that have to do with the beer? What are we even talking about here? And then we couldn't hang out together. We were like washing down and bleaching our Amazon packages and our fruit and vegetables. And we didn't know what was happening. And then we were getting information in real time and it divided neighbors and families and friends. And then just not to mention like there was a political fight with so much vitriol that came out during 2020 and the lines were drawn in the sand to where you unfollowed a bunch of people that you used to be friends with because you found out what they believe politically and now you can't even look them in the eyes. And it was very, very confusing. And then we got to this place where we are now where we're trying to figure out a new normal, but we're like, we're not the same and we know things about other people and how they respond to this and it's very confusing. And so how do we respond, right? We have cultural confusion. Many of us, we have confusion often with our jobs, with our vocation. Like, I've been in this job for a long time, and it pays really well, but I hate it. And I, I feel like I'm just a cog in a system, and I'm making a lot of money, which is fine, but like, I feel like I'm not making a difference, and so should I leave? Others of us had dreams that we were going to make a difference in what we were doing, and we get into it, and we're like, this is not what I thought it was, and I feel trapped in it. I and mean, we feel those kind of things when it comes to work. Or maybe for you, you've achieved a lot in your work, and you've really moved the needle, but you still, at the end of the day, you're like, you want more. You feel like you're never going to be satisfied. Like, how much is enough? How big would the empire have to be for you to actually be satisfied? And you feel confused about what step you should take next. We don't have just work confusion, cultural confusion, but many of us, we all go through relationship confusion, right? So some of us are like, man, will I ever find a partner to where I can walk through life with them? Or, uh, man, my marriage is a mess and I don't know my next right step to take in my marriage, or I just wish I was married, or I was in a marriage and somebody else detonated that marriage and now I'm single again and I'm navigating life as a single parent, I'm navigating life as a single person and I don't like any of it and you just feel so confused about where you're supposed to go there. Uh, so we have relational confusion too, right? We also have spiritual confusion. Can we just be real about that? I mean, some of us, 
uh, you're here this morning checking out church, which is so awesome, but you're confused by the whole thing. Like, why do they like do the Jesus karaoke thing at the beginning of the service with the words on the screens? And why are some people raising their hands like Ricky Bobby? He doesn't know what to do with his hands. And what's that mooing thing that when you hear in the sermon and people go, mmm, you're like, Christians, they moo during the TED talk up on stage. What is going on? You're confused by the whole thing. If you're here, we are so glad that you're here. <laughs> we'll explain everything except for the moving thing, probably at some point. <laughs> but others of us, like we, we've walked in faith for a long time, maybe even grew up in it. And we would say there was a time in our life when everything was very black and white and we understood everything. And our faith was less of trust and more of certainty. We had an answer for everything. We had a Bible verse for everything. We had a YouTube video for everything. And it was really clear. But then as we walk through life and we see the complications of life, then we're like, no, there's, there's some actual gray here. And maybe the way I was taught to un, un, understand faith is not what is actually going on. And so we find ourselves kind of like, where's our footing with this whole faith thing as an adult? And if that's you too, man, I'm so glad that you're here because um, I, I just described my life a little bit too. <laughs> I'm all on journey with you. We have lots of different ways that we feel confusion. And the challenge is, uh, what do we do with it? Do we just sort of like buck up, man up and deal with it and not ever actually speak about it, but just sort of barrel forward? Or is there a way to bring God into it and to bring whatever we're feeling with our confusion to God. And it's a fascinating thing about the Psalms, that big chunk of our Old Testament. Most of the Psalms are attributed to King David. And there is no other person in all of our Bibles. This should stop us in our tracks a little bit. There's no other person in all of our Bibles that more ink is dedicated to than King David. There's more written about David and his story and his writings than Jesus. And David, uh, he pinned these songs, these worship songs, these prayers, these poems, and they walk you through side by side all of the experiences of his life, his victories, his terrible failures, all the ugly and triumphant emotions that he felt. He wrote psalms of joy and of pain, of brokenheartedness, of anger, all of it. It's all there laid bare before God. So what I want to do for the next couple of moments, I just want to give us like a little bit of a backdrop of David's story and then we're going to look at a psalm that he wrote parallel to that as he was dealing with a lot of confusion. Because David's life was like a seven-layer salad of confusion. And that's just an illustration I came up with in the fly that I wish did not come out of my mouth. But that's <laughs> cascading confusion is so complicated from the very beginning. We meet David when a guy named Samuel, who's a prophet of God, goes out to this little place called Bethlehem because God told Samuel he needed to go find and appoint and anoint the new king of Israel. So Samuel goes to the family of Jesse in Bethlehem, and there are eight boys, and he goes down one through seven and says, no, God says you're not the one, God says you're not the one, until he gets at the runt of the family, David, and then God says, this is the guy, this is the one who's going to be the king, the leader, um, the one who shepherd my people forward. He says it's David, and it would be like this great underdog story where it was like, Rudy, Rudy to David, because no one ever thought that the youngest son would be the one that was chosen to be king, but it's kind of complicated because there's already a king on the throne. <laughs> there's someone ruling by the name of Saul, 
And Saul's not going to be too happy that there's a new king who's going to be coming to take the throne. We think of it as like a great political succession story, but it would have been like more like Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings violent, and there would have been a coup and all these wars that happened in the ancient world, and that's exactly what happened. So David feels confusion because he's told he's going to be the next king, but Saul's there on the throne, and Saul doesn't want him to be king. Like, God, what are you doing saying that I'm going to be king? But Saul does something wise and something calculated, you know, that whole thing of keep your enemies or keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That's what he did with David. He brings David into his court to be one of the musicians to play music for King Saul. See, King Saul, uh, he needed live music to soothe his soul. I understand him very well in that regard. And he was tortured by a harmful spirit. And he was like, I just to calm my mind for my mental health. I need live music. So he called David in to be one of his musicians, probably in a sick way to get the one who's going to be king to serve you. Probably there's something like that going on too. But we're told this in 1 Samuel 16, David would take up his lyre, which is like a, a really epic acoustic guitar and play. He probably broke into, oh, here's Wonderwall. Uh, then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the harmful spirit would leave him. So David's like, okay, this will be my role for a while. I'll play some music for the king. I get to be creative. He enjoys that part of it. He thinks everything's going well. I'll just bide my time doing this until I get to become king. And then we'll find out just a couple chapters later that uh, Saul doesn't like that same song he's playing over and over again. And he actually tries to kill David while he's playing music. We're told this in verse nine, uh, chapter 19. But a harmful spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. I mean, you've heard of musicians getting vegetables thrown at them. Now, this would be much worse. And I just have all the curiosity of what song was Saul so sick of hearing that he threw a javelin and a spear at him. We'll never know, but I have lots of different thoughts. Um, but we see here, so David like is escaping. He's confusing, and he thought, thought I had this role in the king's court. I thought I was going to be this artist here. Things are just confusing. We find in the very uh, next chapter the, this whole event with David and Goliath, this Philistine champion, this giant of a man, and nobody would take down this enemy of God's people, Goliath, except for David, who got a smooth stone and a slingshot, took down the giant, and he becomes the big man on campus. He becomes the guy that everybody is jealous about. Everybody wanted to be Saul or be David and be with David, and Saul does not like that very much. People were chanting in Israel, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain tens of thousands. And everybody's singing about David. Everybody wants to be David. And what does that make Saul feel? That makes him feel jealous. And to make matters even more complicated and to David's own demise, David ends up marrying one of Saul's daughters. Like, bro, you're just like, this is not a good move for you. This is not going to work out, right? But he marries one of Saul's daughters, and then Saul's just had it. He's like, I'm finally going to kill this kid who says he's going to one day be king. I'm going to get rid of him. We're told this later in chapter 19. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, who was uh, Saul's daughter who David married, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. He escaped. And for seven years, you guys, David was on the run in exile, living in caves just with some of his friends, eating just enough to get by. Just for a moment, step into David's story and consider how confused he was. Like, God, you told me that I was going to be this. God, wh where are you? What, what's going on here? Like, what direction do I 
take? I, I don't know what's next for me. And he's so confused. He's begging for direction. And what's so powerful about what David does, what I want us to learn from, is that David doesn't move away from God in his confusion. He doesn't move away from God because it doesn't seem like he's got clear answers or certainty about what's next. And that is so powerful to me. Um, Because when I consider my own walk with Jesus, my own relationship with God, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but when things get really hard, my first human response is not to move towards God, it's to back away, it's to move away from God. And, and man, I'm trying to f- learn and grow in that for myself, but David moves towards God. He takes his quill and he starts writing more poetry, songs, worship songs, prayers, asking God for direction and for wisdom in his life. And he penned a subgenre of t- uh, texts of, of psalms called the wisdom psalms. Here's a definition, sort of a scholarly definition of this subgenre that David pens in the book of Psalms. They're Psalms to cultivate a long-term mindset, fixing our hearts and our minds on what is true ultimately, rather than living for short-term gain. They lift our eyes from our situation to the long story of what God's doing. Very often, this perspective involves a contrast between the way of the wicked fool and the way of the righteous. So often you'll see like, well, the fool does this and the righteous does this. It reminds me of what the great Dwight of Schrute from Scranton, Pennsylvania said. Whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. <laughs> Some wisdom there from Scranton, PA, Thunder, Mifflin, or Saber, whatever we're at now. But this is the genre, this is what David writes to encourage us to bring our confusion before God and ask him for wisdom. So what I want to do is I want to take us to one of these wisdom psalms, Psalm 19. I want us to walk through it to see how we can gain wisdom and direction and perspective when things are confusing, when we don't know what's next. Uh, We can bring that and open that up to God. So we'll start in Psalm 19, verse 1. This is one of David's wisdom psalms. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. He continues and says, in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. David begins this wisdom psalm talking about creation and the vastness and the excellence and the beauty and the majesty of God and his creation. To which I imagine that some of you are like, I thought we were talking about wisdom and direction. Why are we going National Geographic here? Like, what's the point? Neil deGrasse Tyson, I thought we were talking about David. What are we doing here? I believe what David is doing in the Wisdom Psalms when he points us to the heavens, to the sun, to the skies, is he's trying to right-size us a little bit to let us know that our God is so big and so majestic and that in light of that, our problems are not something he can't handle. It right-sizes God, and it right-sizes us and our issues and reminds us that this is a God who has hung the stars and the sun spins on his command. I think he's got this, and I think we can grow in our trust that he has got this. So 
lift our eyes from our screens, from just our pity party, and consider what's happening all around us in the heavens and in nature that God has willed into existence, right? There's something that's so powerful when you consider, not that you're insignificant. I don't think that's what David is saying here at all. Not that you're insignificant. The, the scriptures don't really teach us that. We, we tell ourselves that enough. Um, but to let us know that our problems and the scope of God's grand creation, man, it's not too small for him. I mean, just for example, some things I just want to help us get some perspective about our universe that should just you know, magnify this idea. Do you know the sun? It, the sun's big. It, it's massive. But the mass of the sun accounts for 99.8% of all the mass in the solar system. Our sun. Think about that. Of all the mass of our solar system, 99.8% of it is the sun. Think how many millions of planet Earth can fit inside of that, and then here we are in one landmass, and one state, and one town, and one little building that used to be a bank that's now a church. Like, God has got this thing spinning, and the sun is massive. The sun is 93 million miles from Earth. 93 million miles from Earth. And yet when it goes down, we feel cool, and when it goes up and we stay outside without sunscreen, we get burnt from it. 93 million miles away. The earth moves around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. There are more stars in the sky in our universe than grains of sand on earth. More stars in the sky than grains of sand on earth. The best estimation is that there's one septillion stars in the sky, and I'm not going to lay it out completely, but that's one with 24 zeros, y'all. Septillion. I think what David's doing by pointing us to the majesty and the grandeur of the cosmos is right-sizing our problems and right-sizing our God and right-sizing us in the middle of it. And it should help remind us that God's got this. We don't know what he's doing directly, but we can trust, we can rest knowing that God is big enough for this. David continues and says this next. The law of the Lord is perfect refreshing the soul. The statutes, another word for law, of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise and simple. The precepts, another word for law, of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. He continues and says this, the fear of the Lord is pure. And when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's not like, ah, the Lord. No, it's like this awe of God, this reverence for God is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much more pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David next, he goes to the, the message, the, the law, the Torah of God found in the first five books of the Old Testament. And he says, this is so sweet, so powerful, so pure, so righteous. And whenever we talk about the law uh, in like Christian circles today, like, we have to take a step back because we hear law, we go immediately bad. We go law burden. We're under grace now. And so law bad, commands bad, all that kind of stuff bad. Let's take a step back and consider what the law was, what these commands were to these ancient Israelites. They were everything. This was a marriage covenant between the God who rescued them out of Egypt and them. This was giving them a mission to be a light to the whole world, to live differently so that people would see that their God was different. This was not a burden to them. This was a gift to them where they knew exactly where they stood 
before the God of the universe. And that's why they're saying it's sweet. That's why they're saying it's right and it gives light to the eyes because when they follow it, life works and makes sense. But to our world today, under the new covenant, under this new thing that Jesus is doing, what is our law from the Lord? It's to love God and love others the way that God has loved us, period. <laughs> love God and love others the way that Jesus has loved us, period. That's it. It's simple, but not easy. And I think that David is, is pointing us to this way that we're called to live because he is saying we can get so wrapped up in ourselves when we're needing wisdom, right? It's just all about us and our pity party, and we'll get back to loving and serving people once we get our stuff figured out and sorted. I think David is saying, no, let's make the main thing the main thing. And he's saying that when I consider my design, my purpose, my mission to love you and shine your love to other people, man, life works. It makes sense. God, remind me that you have laid out a way for me to live that leads me to flourishing in this world. And don't let me neglect that because I'm confused and hazy on what's next. And if I follow this, life is going to most of the time just work because it's like we're designed to live under the rule, the reign, and the kingdom of God. Let us be warned that this is the way that we're called to live. This is a beautiful, beautiful promise that we can hold on to even when we're confused. Like, I don't know what's next. I don't know what the career path is next. I don't know what my relationship thing is. I don't understand this, but I know this, that if I get busy in the work of loving God and loving other people the way that Jesus loved me, then I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and I'm actually going to have more light, not less light on what my next steps are. So get busy in working in the way that God has created us to live. David continues and says this very next verse. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression, which is another word for sin. David next, he's like, okay, if I'm in a season of confusion, I need to make sure that like I am growing in the way that God wants me to grow. I need to do some internal looks, some what we don't like in our cultural culture very much is introspection. Like what's actually going on in me? What are the things that maybe I'm fooling myself and I'm actually hurting myself and others? See, when we're in a season of confusion, if you think back in maybe a season of your life or maybe even right now, when we're in those seasons, we often make it worse by our behavior, don't we? We often like shoot ourselves in the foot by numbing ourselves, by medicating ourselves, by not dealing with something, putting the metaphorical newspaper over it instead of cleaning it up. And I think this is what David's getting at here. He's saying, God, search me to see what are those things that I'm just doing and I'm not thinking about, that I've drifted into that's ultimately going to harm me and harm other people. I, I think back to like early pandemic. Uh, like it was like the first couple weeks after we had started the church and then we had to shut down the church because of COVID. And I remember like just coming in here. I was like the only one that would come in uh, to this room. And I'm like, what am I doing? I guess I should just work really hard on something. And so I, I just went right into workaholism because I was so confused. I would just be here a lot. I'd be making all the connections and calls. I was working ahead on sermon series like eight months out because I'm like, I just got to keep working. I just got to keep working. I just got to keep doing this. And, and what that did in the process was it was medicating me. It was numbing me from maybe other things that God was teaching me. And it was neglecting relationships that meant more to me. 
And ultimately, it didn't really move me down the field any further. <laughs> it harmed me. And we all have those isms that we run to when we're confused and we're trying to just make ourselves feel better. Maybe it's going from two drinks to four drinks. Maybe it's using some prescription more than it's prescribed because it's the only thing that can help you do the thing you need to get done. Maybe it's certain websites that we can just like let go of our mind a little bit, but we feel terrible, stuck in shame after we're done with it. It could be all these different kind of things. And here's the trap about these willful sins that we drift into. So that most of the time, they begin and the feeling is magical. The, I mean, the, I used to think that people like did drugs because like they, they, they just were like trying to escape something. No, like it felt euphoric and magical to them as it started. It began magical. And then as you go further, it becomes medicinal because you're trying to just feed that craving and you just have to. It's not just because of the feeling, because you have to. So you go from magical to medicinal, then to miserable, where you just wish you could stop. If I could only stop, things would be amazing. And I think David hits the nail right on the head when he says that these willful things that we get into that start magical, go medicinal, and then miserable, they rule over us. We feel like we're in control of them, but no, they're actually controlling us. David says, cleanse me of it. Take, care, take it from me. Forgive me from it. I want to be free. Show me what it is so I can bring it before you so that we can deal with it so I don't drift in farther to shoot myself in the foot when I'm in this rudderless season. And then David goes into the very end of the psalm and he says this as a coda. And even if he didn't believe this or feel this, he, he wanted to believe it. And this is so powerful. He says, may these words of my mouth, my speech, the meditations of my heart, the things I'm thinking about be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I think it's fascinating that David uses the phrase rock, which would have been cliff face, some bedrock kind of massive stone in this passage, because he says, when life is topsy-turvy, when I don't know what's up and what's down, you are my rock. I'm going to cling to you. You are the sturdy one when everything else is spinning. He says, this is where I'm going to cling. I might not have cheap, trite answers. I might not, at the end of reading this psalm, feel like I'm saying some kind of incantation to where I get exactly what I want. No, but this is going to point my eyes and my heart in the direction of a God who I can trust, even when the storm is still raging, even when I don't know what's left and right, up and down anymore. This is what's powerful when we pray with the Psalms, when we speak and work through these ancient prayers, these footsteps of people opening up themselves to God, is it doesn't give us like easy solutions, but it helps us bring our emotions before him so that we can be transformed in the process. So this month, um, you know, it's June, it's summer. It's when churches should be just like kicking back a little bit because like everybody's at the lake or in Florida most of the time. But we're going to do something a little crazy, a um, little experimenting here at Bridgeway this month. Uh, we're calling it, we're calling it Psalm Lab because we want to give, uh, you know, we sort of consider this like the lecture portion of the class. And then Monday through Saturday is the lab, right? When you're out in the wild doing church in the wild, doing life with God in the wild. And so what we have done, you can scan that QR code. Starting tomorrow morning, um, we have recorded and will be recording a five to seven minute podcast, a five to seven minutes of audio um, to help us all bring our emotions and what's really going on to God through the Psalms. It's going to be a five to seven minute podcast where we're saying we're cultivating a sacred space 
for you to engage with God through these ancient psalms. So five to seven minutes of somebody reading the psalm, a couple reflection questions or prompts for you to consider in your head and your heart, and then a prayer to close. We think this could be a powerful thing if you're on your commute to work, if you're gardening, if you're running, if you just have a little bit of silence, or if you've got toddlers, if you lock yourself in the bathroom for five to seven minutes, this is perfect. I don't know why I think that's a perfect scenario. Um, <laughs> but we want to help you be formed in this way. And we think this will be a powerful tool that you can use as we pray through all these different kinds of psalms. So this whole week, we're going to go through five of the wisdom psalms. The next week, we're going to talk about psalms of lament. Then we're going to talk about those precatory, angry psalms. We're going to talk about psalms of joy. But we want to give you experience in doing this so that God forms you from the inside out, so that you don't push down your emotions, but you're honest with them before him. So we'll be pushing this out all week, but we think it'll be a really powerful tool if you guys have the guts to be honest with God and to grow in your trust of him in this way. Um, I mentioned earlier, Eugene Peterson um, has done so much work on the Psalms. It's been so powerful. This is the promise of what can happen if we become people who don't just pray when we want something or pray when something goes wrong, we're trying to get God to turn around, but if we become people that pray these ancient Psalms, Peterson says this, the Psalms are access to an environment in which God is the pivotal center of life and in which all other people, events, or circumstances are third parties. Neither bane, which is like pain and uh, violence, nor blessing distracts the psalmists for long from this center. And this is my prayer for me, this is my prayer for you, is that we become people that we can make God the center of everything, of all the emotions, of all the pain, of all the joy, of everything that we experience, that we don't experience it without God, but we experience it with God and that we're healed and transformed in the process. So do you have the guts to be honest with God? Do you have the guts to like bring whatever you're feeling before God instead of just pushing off to the side? So the promise is that when we do that, man, he becomes central to everything and you become alive like never before. And that's the promise. I pray that you'll go on the journey with us this month.